been from the Gospel of John, and we, we did a, a little sermon, a little message on how people change. And we kind of took the framework from Scripture of what it actually looks like for people to go from uh, a sinful behavior to understanding the roots of that sinful behavior and their sinful desires and our sinful thinking, and how in Christ and being saved and and depending on God's grace and and depending on the Spirit in us, we then find that to be changed where we now have new desires, a new way of thinking, which then ultimately leads to new behaviors, right? So we go from sinful behaviors to sinful desires by the cross that's changed to righteous desires, righteous thinking to righteous behaviors. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to then narrow, take that framework and narrow in on a specific sin issue, the sin issue of anger. And we're going to talk about what does scripture say about the one side and how does that change? How does this actually change over to from anger to how God calls us to respond to situations where we've been hurt or frustrated. So let's go ahead and pray as we look at God's word this morning. Father, we we understand the truth of the words of what we just sang. May we stand on Christ alone and on your word alone this morning. May we realize any other ground is only sinking sand. May your word work in us this morning, Father. May everything I say be faithful and accurate to your word, not to my own knowledge or attempt at wisdom, but only in what your word says. May it be faithful to it. May we leave this place understanding not just more of how we change, but how we deal with these specific problems in our lives as we deal with constant suffering in our world and a constantly a broken world where people are harming and hurting each other how do we respond when we begin to feel anger and bitterness towards someone so help us this morning by your spirit work in us and may we have our hearts and our minds transformed into that which is honoring to you we ask all of this in jesus name Amen. So within the last couple of weeks, with the holidays rising up, uh, I saw a tip on Facebook on how to save money this Christmas season. It stated that if you want to preserve some of your finances this year, then all you have to do is when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table, bring up politics. You'll be sure to generate enough anger and enough arguing that there's some people who won't want to come back for Christmas. Thus, you won't have to buy them gifts. Now, we certainly know that this isn't the Christian way to handle ourselves with our family. But nevertheless, it strikes a chord with how many people view the holidays, doesn't it? You dread seeing a specific person because they simply just annoy you, or they've insulted you in the past, or you hate the thought of having a conversation with that one person that just seems to continue to take advantage of the family, or the person that deeply hurt the family in some way in the past and doesn't seem to be sorry for it. This really just ends up hitting on a larger problem, though, doesn't it? 
People simply don't know how to handle their anger. We become bitter, resentful, even according to Scripture, hateful, and we don't know what to do with it. And our world has given us a solution, hasn't it? Cancel culture. Just go ahead and cancel the person, right? Somebody can have a sin that they've repented of and been clean of for 20 years, and it still to this day can prevent them from any type of success in the world's eyes because they're canceled. They messed up one time. They're done, right? But that's not how Scripture speaks to our anger. Scripture offers us a way of how we're supposed to handle it. So like I said, what we're going to do today is we're going to take the framework from last week about how people change it, and we're going to tackle the issue of specifically relational anger, right? within relationships with other people. We could get into a whole other sermon series about people and being angry with God. We're talking about human relationships. Now, that does have a bearing on how we relate to God, but I'm not talking about being angry with God. I'm talking about being angry, bitter, or resentment towards another person. So we're in Matthew chapter 18. And the passage that we're going to read this morning takes place right after Jesus just described church discipline. Where Jesus says, if someone sins against you, this is how you handle it. You remember that, right? You go to the person. If they don't listen, you go with witnesses. If they don't listen, you bring it to the church. If they still don't repent, right? Let them be as a Gentile to you, right? There's this whole goal of reconciliation there. But this is what follows that. Now, we'll hit a little bit of that as we go through this, but our main passage is what follows. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Let's read it. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Peter makes it clear 
at the beginning of this in verse 21, that he's wrestling with this idea of forgiveness. Uh, Give me a number, Lord. Seven? Seven times can they mess up and then I have to forgive them? And this, what we see from Peter here is what we called last week the surface sin, right? This sinful behavior. His words are making it abundantly clear. I want to hold on to my bitterness, right? We call this the sin of anger. Your first point in all of this, dealing with the sin side of things. The sin of anger. And all of us have surface sins of how anger displays itself, don't we? It shows itself in different ways, though. I have three that I just wanted to go through real quick. Three ways our anger might show itself. It may be first by distancing ourselves from the person that we're angry with. Look at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. So this describes someone who loves strife and someone who makes their door high. Now that might confuse some of us, but just imagine here, in this culture, what was their door essentially was their gate, right? So it's making a reference here to the gate in order to enter into the home. And what happens when you make your gate taller and taller and taller? You're making a point here of, I want less people to come in. The taller the gate is, the less you want to enter And that's the point here. People want to hold on to strife. People want to hold on to their anger. They end up building these walls in order to distance themselves from other people. So within your family members, it might mean you avoid talking to that specific person. It might mean when they enter the room, you find a way to leave the room. It might mean when they talk to you, you keep your sentences very short with them because you want to keep that wall up. Or maybe if you have anger towards someone at church, you might stop coming to church as often because you don't want to see that person. Or maybe you hurry out of church afterwards because you don't want to have to speak to them. Whatever the situation is, this is one surface sin. You isolate yourself, right? So that's one way. But then there's another surface sin, and that's kind of the opposite, where you become harsh, Now, you might be harsh to that person, you might go gossip about that person, or you might find ways to seek revenge on that person. Look at Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Right? So you might speak harshly to that person because you're angry with them, or you speak harshly about that person to other people. We call that gossip. We call that slander. Or you might contemplate ways that you can make their situation harsh for them. We call that revenge. Right? This is the famous argument at the dinner table, right? Where the two people are going at it and everybody else sits there awkwardly and just watches them speak harshly to each other. Or within the church, it's those phone calls that happen throughout the week behind the closed doors of, did you hear about so-and-so, or what did you think about what so-and-so did this week? Or it's going out in the community and telling them, well, this per- I don't like this person because this is going on, or I don't like th- how they did this or how they did that. So we have, you either distance yourself, or you become harsh and vengeful. And last... We have the surface sin of fake love. 
You pretend like everything is fine, but you still hold on to anger within you. Look at Proverbs 26, verse 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. You're essentially flattering the person that you're angry with by pretending that they didn't do anything wrong. But all it is is causing ruin. Ruin in the relationship, ruin inside of you, right? And we all probably can think of people like this, right? This is those family members who actually everybody in the family knows they hate each other, but they're super friendly to each other when they come in contact at the holidays, right? We all can probably think of scenarios uh, like that. Or it's those people who show up to church, right? And they're super friendly to everybody, but inside during the service, all they can do is criticize every single thing that's happening in regards to the person that they're angry with. And really, this is what we want to focus on. Not necessarily the, the surface sin of fake love, but the internal reality of what's going on here, right? It can show up in a number of different ways on the surface level, but the heart problem we learned last week, is what we really need to figure out. We called it the deeper problem, the person's mind and the person's heart. This is where anger truly rests. It might display itself in a straightforward question like what Peter said of, how many times do I have to forgive someone? Or it may be just much more subtle than that. No matter what the surface sin, it, surface sin is, the problem is an angry heart. Look at Proverbs 26. We were just there, but look at the verses preceding that. Verse 24. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips. His wickedness, er, and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. So you can try to disguise it with your words, even sound gracious in your speech, but your heart has abominations in it. Your heart is harboring deceit. And eventually that hatred, that anger, will be exposed. It can't go on forever. Because an angry heart stems from not getting what you want in life. And when you're angry toward, in a specific relationship, not getting what you want from that specific person. Look how James describes it. James chapter 4. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You have divisions and you have arguments in life because everybody has their own passions and their own desires, right? There's something that you want, there's something that you think you deserve, and you're not getting it. It might be a desire of you want to be loved by that person, and you're not getting it. 
It might be that you have a desire to have peace amongst your family holiday meal, and you're not getting it. Now, these aren't necessarily bad desires, right? It's not necessarily wrong to want to feel loved or to to want peace amongst people. But there also are bad desires, right, that this could be. It could be that you just have the desire to be right. And when someone disagrees with you, you become angry with them. They didn't give you what you wanted in that they didn't say that you were right. But the point is, whether what you're desiring is a good desire or a bad desire, how are you responding, how's your heart responding when it doesn't get what it wants? That's the problem. Anger says, when I don't get what I want, I get to place myself in the judgment seat. I not only get to determine that what this person has done is wrong, but I get to determine how this person should be treated as a result for what they did wrong. When you hold on to anger, you've actually taken vengeance into your own hands. This person's wrong now allows you to hate that person. In fact, the argument was actually made in Jesus' day. He says this. Remember, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and shall hate your enemy. On some level, the Jewish society had ruled that this was acceptable. That you can hate those who have wronged you. When someone sins, it creates a debt that must be paid. Right? There's a debt there. That's what we saw even in the parable Jesus tells. There's a debt that's there for sin. But when you hold on to anger, you believe you've become the debt collector. And you're going to collect that payment either face-to-face or you're going to collect it secretly by what's going on behind closed doors that they may not know about. You've taken vengeance into your own hands. Even if, even if you don't say or do anything, even if on the surface everything looks good, your angry heart shows that you've taken vengeance upon yourself. But to handle it this way is still sin. Because what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you not to hate your enemy, but love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. He says, vengeance doesn't belong to you, but to him. In fact, look how far John takes it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John goes as far to say that if you are holding on to bitterness or anger or hate towards someone that's wronged you and claim to still love God, you're lying. Elsewhere in his letter, he says, you're still walking in the darkness rather than the light. If you can't love the one that you see, how can you claim that you love the one whom you can't see? So then how do we change? 
How do we change from this being angry inside to now knowing that we're called to be forgiving from the heart? That brings us back to our main passage for today in Matthew chapter 18, where we find the antidote for anger. We have two acts to the story, Act 1, Act 2, and in both those acts we have the same servant. In the first act, he's the debtor, but in the second act, what's he become? The debt collector. So let's take Act 1. In verse 24, we find out that this servant owes the king 10,000 talents. 20 years' wages. This is a massive debt. Just imagine in our culture, right? Just put, put, put a year's wages at $50,000. He owes a million dollars to this king. One million dollars. Imagine trying to pay off such a debt in our world. Imagine you owe a million dollars while you're also trying to pay all the needs off of everything else that you have in life. So because of this debt... He must make payment for it. That's what we see in verse 25. Since he could not pay, what's the payment? This king's going to sell him, his family, and everything he owns. He has to make some sort of payment back, and this is all the king has left to do. Well, surely the servant doesn't want this by any means for his family. Right? Certainly not, not for himself, but certainly not for his family. He doesn't want to lose all his possessions and everything that he's worked for to provide for his family. So in verse 26, he pleads for mercy. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, we know how unlikely this really is, don't we? What's the likelihood that this guy is going to pay back a million dollars of debt by the time his life is over? He's probably not going to make it there. It'd be nearly impossible. That's why it's an amazing shock of relief, shock of grace, what the king does in verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Can you imagine it? A million dollars, all of it, Gone. Not a single penny left to be paid. And that's the end of Act 1. What a beautiful act of grace where this king forgives an insurmountable debt. But then we come to Act 2. And the servant switches from being the debtor to being the debt collector. In verse 28, he goes and finds a servant who owes him a hundred days Wages. So again, in our terms, let's say ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars, somewhere in there. Now that's still a good chunk of money, right? You have a ten, fifteen thousand dollar car loan. That's a significant loan you still have to pay off. But in comparison to a million dollar loan, that's minuscule. And this man's just been forgiven his million dollars, and he comes to someone who owes him ten thousand dollars, and what's he do? He begins to choke him, demanding that he pay it. This servant has said, I'm the judge now. You're going to pay me back. 
And this fellow servant makes the same plead for mercy that the other servant just made to the king. Verse 29. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He asked for patience, just like the other one asked the king, but he refuses. In verse 30. He goes ahead and he sends his fellow servant to prison. As a result... The servant who had received mercy from the king has that mercy reversed on him. Verse 31, his fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So the master calls him back and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus makes it abundantly clear then in verse 35 that we prove ourselves to be just like this servant if we don't forgive from the heart. Catch that there at the end. This isn't just pretend surface-level forgiveness. Right? This isn't just this outward display while we still get to hold on to our angry hearts. You see, because what happened to the servant is he became a grace amnesiac. He forgot the grace that had been shown to him. In fact, if you had actually watched this story take place and you saw him leave the king and come over to his fellow servant and start choking him, you'd think this guy got bonked on the head on his way there and forgot what just happened to him. There's some sort of mental illness going on in this guy for him to forget everything that just happened to him in order to come to this other servant with a much lesser debt and start choking him and demand that he pay it. But that's exactly what we do. When we hold on to our anger, when we say, I get to be the one who's going to dish out vengeance to people, we've forgotten God's grace. We forget everything that we've been forgiven for. Because here's what we have to remember. All that God has forgiven you for is always always worse than what someone else has done to you. Now, some of you are starting to object in your minds to that. Right? You don't know what happened to me, right? You don't know my story. So let me clarify here. I by no means am advocating that anything that someone has done to you personally is to be taken as a mild case of sin. By no means should we take it lightly. People do and say incredibly awful things to each other. But what I do mean is this. We need to understand that a sinner sinning against a holy God is always more severe than a sinner sinning against a sinner. Right? So I'm not advocating that we lessen the sinner versus sinner sin, but I'm saying we take as more severe the sinner versus a holy God sin. To claim 
that what someone did to you is worse than anything you've done to God is to actually take this parable and switch the dollar amounts. You're saying, they owe me a million dollars, but I only owe God $10,000. And that's simply not true. Your debt against God was an eternal debt, an insurmountable debt. In fact, let's look at David real quick and how he understands his own sin in Psalm 51. Just listen to this and ask yourself, is this how I view my own sin? Psalm 51, starting in verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Is that how you view yourself? That your sin is ever before you? That you have done evil in the sight of God? That you even, from a moment of conception, were brought forth in sin? And that you need to be purged, cleansed, renewed, restored, and upheld only by God? Don't be a grace amnesiac. Instead, The antidote for your anger is to remember God's grace. Dwell on his goodness, his forgiveness towards you. That you had a deep debt that you were going to spend all of eternity paying for. A debt more than money, but a debt of wrath that was going to go on forever and ever and ever. And God sent his own son to pay that debt for you. So that he might pardon your sin. Not just act as if it never happened, but that it was already paid in full. So you didn't have to pay it. It's as you begin to meditate on the truth of God's grace to you that you now begin to see the sins of others clearly. If God forgives me, couldn't God forgive them? And shouldn't that mean I should be able to forgive them? It is only in remembering God's grace to you in Christ that you begin to find yourself changing, transformed from an angry heart, from self-righteous thoughts. Your pride of I'm the judge is now overwhelmed by the humility of your own sinfulness and God's grace shown to you. Your anger towards this wrong that is done to you is replaced with compassion because now you see this person as a fellow sinner who needs grace just as badly as you do. You can't be bitter and dwell on God's grace at the same time. It can't be done. Because when you ponder upon God's grace, you then find yourself as a conduit of grace. 
right? Just like it makes no use to turn the lamp on when it's not plugged into the wall, so you also can't forgive unless you're plugged into God's grace. Which brings us to our final point. What does this exactly look like? What does this look like to actually remember God's grace in the midst of these wrongs done to us? Call this walking in God's grace. While remembering God's grace is the antidote for our sinful hearts to change, what does this practically look like in the life of a believer? So I want to just give a general progression here of how this looks. First, confess your sin. Come to God first and confess your sin. Whether you've been holding on to this anger since this morning or you've been doing it for the last 20 years, the reality is harboring bitterness towards someone is sin and it needs to be confessed. To some extent, if you're harboring anger, you have done something wrong in the situation. Maybe you've done even more than have anger. Maybe you've said things about that person or to that person that you also need to confess to the Lord. So you go to the Lord and you acknowledge your sin. Not just some generic verbal statement, right? You get into the specifics. What I'm feeling, what I'm thinking is wrong. It's sinful. Admit that you've tried to take it into your own hands instead of giving it over to God's hands. He doesn't desire some routine prayer of confession. He wants you to have a broken and contrite heart that grasps, actually, the weight of what you're doing. The fact that you've displeased him and dishonored him with this anger. And we find the result there in 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's really hard to approach peace with another person if you first haven't been cleansed from your own wrongdoing in the situation. And what confessing to God first also forces you to deal with is maybe you've interpreted the the whole situation wrongly. Maybe this person never even sinned against you. Maybe they just disagreed with you and you took that as sin because you always want to be right. So now you confess to God, and you still need to seek peace with that person, but you approach that person in an entirely different way if they really haven't sinned against you. If, your sin, if the sin is really on your shoulders, that you've interpreted it wrongly. So first, confess your sin. Second, you come to heart forgiveness. If what that person did to you is actually wrong, actually sinful, you bring that to God as well. And what you do here is you say, God, I'm taking the judgment out of my hands and I'm putting it in yours. Right? You're achieving what God tells us to do in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what's really going on here is You say, God, you're going to be the judge. God, you're the one who gets to dish out vengeance. Ed Welch says it this way. At this moment is when you begin to say, God, I'm going to let you be angry for me. I'm not going to hold on to it anymore. You actually fulfill what we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, where it tells us to put off these evil things, right? These evil desires, our, our anger, our wrath, our malice. And then it tells us what? To put on forgiveness, to be tender hearted. This is where that begins 
to take place. And you have to, you must do it in relationship to God because you can't do it otherwise. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, right? This is where we receive grace for our forgiveness, that we may receive mercy. But then look what else you find. And find grace to help in time of need. You see it there. You come to the Lord first, confess your sin, find mercy and forgiveness for your sin, but then God also, when you need it, which when you're angry, you need it, gives you grace to help you learn how to forgive. Remember last week we said all of this is based, all this life change is based by us relying on God's grace. It's only by His grace working in you that you can actually accomplish this heart forgiveness. But then we begin to make a transition. We transition from confessing to God, bringing the wrongdoing to God, heart forgiveness in relationship with God towards this other person. Now we have to shift to actually addressing the other person, so we pursue peace. And let me just state it plainly here. No matter who sinned in the situation, if you know there's sin in the situation, you are to pursue peace. You can't ignore this step. In fact, let me show you Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there's, if your brother has something against you, if you're the one who sinned, if you sinned against that person and realize you've sinned, you go to that person to initiate peace. But then what do we find in Matthew chapter 18, right before this passage that we read today? Matthew eighteen fifteen, If your brother sins against you, now it's the opposite. You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You can't ignore this step. If you've sinned, go. If they've sinned, go. You have to initiate the step of peace. You can't ignore this. In fact, I would say to ignore it is straight disobedience and is also living in sin because you're ignoring both of those passages. But when you do go, since you first confessed to the Lord and addressed your heart before the Lord, you now come to this person with a desire for peace. You speak to this person with gentleness and with love, bringing up their sin or addressing your own sin without becoming defensive about it. And as you do this, you fulfill as best you can that verse right before verse 19 in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And as much as it depends on you, seek peace. Now, the next step is based on the person's response. We now come to relational reconciliation. And if this person doesn't repent of their sin, in some sense the relationship's still broken. But, remember, what you've already done in step two with heart forgiveness means your heart still isn't going to hold on to it, even if they don't repent. It's at that point you have to be discerning and say, have I done everything I can as much as it depends on me, 
Or do I maybe have to address this again at a later date and hope to continue to pursue peace? That's a discernment issue. But if this person does repent of the sin, forgiveness should be completed. You've already completed your heart forgiveness, but now the actual relational aspect should be completed. There should be reconciliation. That means you are no longer going to bring this sin up to yourself when you're sitting at home, to other people when you're talking about this person, or to this other person the next time you get mad at them. You're not going to bring it up anymore. Look at Proverbs 17, verse 9. This needs to be true of you. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. If you're going to continue to repeat someone's sin, even if they've already repented and tried to pursue peace with you about it, then you're still living in sin because you're still separating. But when you actually want true forgiveness, love, you seek to cover the offense. It's over with. It's done. We don't need to talk about it anymore. That brings us to the last step. Restoration. Now this depends upon the severity of the offense. For extremely severe offenses, this may mean the relationship is over and is never revisited again. Right? We think of issues, severe issues like abuse and rape and things like that in our world. In fact, you may never even be able to go to the pursue peace part, depending on what the relationship is and the severity of it and how things played out. You may never be able to have full peace or reconciliation, but you always have to still do the first two steps, no matter what. You always have to confess and heart forgiveness. Always. But any other offense that allows for it, right, Put aside those extremely severe ones. Anything else, we should seek peace, pursue peace, actually have reconciliation, and then have restoration, which means the relationship continues on in some sense. Now, for some relationships, like a husband and wife, a parent and child, a family member, maybe a close friend, it may mean your relationship needs, now needs to go back to the way it was before. No dynamics of that relationship may need to change as a result of the sin that's been done. For other situations, the trust may be broken, right? That doesn't mean the relationship stops. It just means now we have to work through what it means to establish this level of trust that was broken. The whole point is that true repentance and true forgiveness, you don't abandon the relationship. You can't. It may take time, but you have to work towards restoration. And these are your steps of what it means to walk in God's grace. You bring your own sin to the Lord. You bring the whole situation to God in order to have your heart transformed in how you handle the sin. And as you bring it to God, you find yourself showered with God's grace. You remember God's grace towards your own sin. You are then able to offer that grace to others. That truly is the antidote for your anger. The more you remember God's grace poured out on you in pain for your sins by sending Jesus to the cross, the more enabled you become by his grace to put off the angry heart and to actually begin to extend forgiveness and peace
to the people around you. So as you approach the holidays and those dinner table conversations, or as you approach fellow church members that maybe you're unhappy with how something's been handled or something someone has said, or as you approach anyone who's wronged you, will you do these three things? Will you remember God's grace, surrender yourself to that grace, and then walk in his grace? All of it, the antidote for your anger, always rests only in his grace. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach what's supposed to be a time of joy and celebration in the holidays, we often can become anxious and frustrated about people that we're going to have to see people who have hurt us. So help us, Father, to confess our sin to you, confess our anger and our bitterness to you first, to have our hearts transformed from anger to forgiveness before we ever come to that person. And it may not be the holidays, it may be somebody here in this building, it may be somebody that we work with, it may be somebody in the community, whatever the situation, however many situations of anger there are, Father, help us to bring it to you and remember the debt that we've been forgiven. The grace that you've poured out on us by sending Jesus to the cross. May that grace and that grace alone be the thing that changes us changes us from anger and bitterness and resentment to forgiveness, compassion, and tender hearts. Help us by your Spirit to live this out, Father. Help us to encourage each other towards a life of peace with all. May we find ourselves, as we're showered with grace, also conduits of grace that we extend it out to those around us. That those who already know your grace might see the more beauty of it as we extend it. And those who don't know your grace might come to know your grace through our display of it. Help us as we go throughout these months and celebrations. Help us to have our anger become forgiveness by your grace. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As they come up and close, we're going to sing blessed